I'm confident that if I were to ask this question of everyone here today, just going around the room, that I'd probably get the same response, at least from the overwhelming majority, if not from everyone. And that question is, what is the city of God? And what I mean by that is, as we think on history, what city in history has been known as God's city? And I believe as we look at the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and perhaps some of the others, we can come to an understanding of what the answer to this is. Anybody want to venture it? It's Jerusalem. Okay. And there may be many reasons why Jerusalem is considered the city of God, but it primarily seems to be that because God's house, God's temple, was located there. What else do we know about the city? Who founded the city? Who designed it? Who fashioned it? Who dwelt there before it became the city of God? Why was this city so important in God's eyes? And what eventually happened to the city? Turn over to Ezekiel, the 16th chapter, and I want to look at the first 22 verses of Ezekiel 16 today to answer these questions. And while you're turning there, I'll just note that this is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament because of the figures that are used, and in particular, when you can think about these figures and compare them with certain things today that we'll get into in a little while. There's four things that I want to look at in Ezekiel 16, verses 1 through 22, though. That is, the initial state of the city, God's attitude when he found the city, thirdly, what God did for the city, and finally, let's look at the fall of Jerusalem. So let's begin with chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. When you think of cities, sometimes you think of founders of the cities and founding fathers. And unfortunately, you know, there are not a lot of cities that I know the founding fathers of in this country. Maybe that's uh, not a good thing, but I just don't know. Nashville, for example, that might be one of Charles Nash's relatives. I don't know. But maybe he could shed some light on that. But I don't know who the founder or the founding father of Nashville was. That's the same with Franklin and a lot of other cities. I do know that sometimes it's said that George Washington is the father of the country. And there's maybe several reasons why that's the case, but it was because of his contributions during the early developmental stages of the country is why he's called the father of the nation. But you ever thought about it? Who's the mother of the country? We don't usually think of the mother of a city or the, the mother of a country like we do the father. But here in this passage, God attributes both fatherhood and motherhood to Jerusalem. He says, your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. I believe this is done to demonstrate the diverse culture that you had in Jerusalem. Here you had a city that was a multinational city, a city that uh, was ready to receive anything from anybody, perhaps a city very similar to what Athens, Greece, became sometime later. And so you had a city that was diverse, and your navel cord was not cut. Here's a city that's in the rough, and the figures likened unto a newborn baby that is not cared for, but rather it's tossed out into the open field. 
and not ever cleaned and washed up and taken care of the way that it should be. It's filthy. It's degenerate. Not that we're saying that a newborn baby is filthy and degenerate, but certainly this represents an abhorrent type of situation when a baby's thrown out into an open field without ever having been cared for or cleaned up or washed off. That's the state that Jerusalem was in. Well, let's look at verses 6 and 7 then. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, in your blood, live. And maybe some of the translations say, though you were in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. And these verses show God's attitude when he found the city of Jerusalem. Here was a city that was growing up. It was ready for maturity, but it was still barren. It was still naked. It was still bloody. It had never been cleaned up. Verses 8 through 14. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. And the comparison here is with a young woman who is maturing and becoming of age where she can become married and enjoy the benefits and blessings of a marriage relationship, perhaps the ability to bear children. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists, and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was a fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. And these verses describe the glory that Jerusalem had, perhaps from the days of David all the way until the time that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar came and invaded the city. And it talks especially of the beauty of the city. And as you think through Old Testament history, you might recall there are a number of places where you can see that Jerusalem was really a place to behold. It was a beautiful place. All the things were there that were just a sight to see, and that's particularly so in the days of Solomon. Think on the days of Solomon for a minute with me. Do you recall how wealthy the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem was during the reign of Solomon? 1 Kings, the 10th chapter in verse 27, tells us that silver was as stones in the days of Solomon. Verse 21 of the same chapter tells us that silver was accounted as nothing in those days. So here you had a city with wealth that was unparalleled before and after. And it also talks not only of the beauty, but also of the renown of the city. And as we think of the days of Solomon in particular, the city of Jerusalem had a great renown. After all, people came from all over to see Solomon, to hear his great wisdom, and to see all the works that he had done and the great temple and the buildings and the wealth of this land. And so you had this renown that was going on in the city of Jerusalem during the days of Solomon. But you also might recall the days of Hezekiah. Remember what Hezekiah's downfall was? Hezekiah, when the ambassadors from Babylon came over to see him, what did he do? He showed them the treasure house of the city. And they looked at that and went back to Babylon, not saying, boy, that's a city to behold, 
Rather, that's a city worth going in and taking. And, of course, that's what they eventually did. But here you had a city that God had made just lavish, extravagant. And they could have kept it by doing one thing, and that's obeying God. Well, that brings us to the fall then, verses 15 through 22. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them. Also my food, which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you, you set it before them as sweet incense, and so it was, said the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter, that you have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire? And in all your abomination and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood. Of course, these final few verses in this passage tell us about the apostasy that took place that Isaiah had talked about, that Jeremiah talked about, Ezekiel here, Ezekiel being in the past tense, with regard to Jerusalem and Judah in general, and then some of the other prophets like Hosea talked about with regard to Israel. Here you had a people that had been given everything by God, and yet they threw it all away to pursue false gods. Verse 22 is an interesting verse because it says, In all these abominations, all these acts of harlotry, they didn't remember their initial state. They didn't remember the days of their youth when they were naked and bare and struggling in their blood and what God had done for them. All the idolatry that was there. Why? Verse 15 shows us this. But you trusted in your own beauty. You know, there's a phrase that appears at least a couple of times in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6 and verse 14, also chapter 8 and verse 11, that says, they're talking about the false prophets crying out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now, I don't believe this just has reference to carnal warfare, but it also includes the thought that we must be at peace with God. We must be in a good relationship with God. After all, we're the children of Israel. We have the right of circumcision. We have the Ark of the Covenant. We have the law. So everything's well. Our treasure house is full. You know, we're God's people. People talk about us. We've got a reputation, renown. You know, that's a similar situation to what Job's friends had to deal with. Remember in the book of Job, when Job had all that calamity that had befallen him, and his friends come along and start accusing him and saying, Job, we know that you must be a sinner because look at all this calamity that's come upon you. Look at all this disaster. You need to repent, Job, whereas if you were righteous, we know that you would be prosperous. And, of course, we see at the end of that book the folly of that kind of thinking. And yet, that's what Israel is doing here. They're thinking that we've got prosperity, and that proves that we're with God. We're with God, and God's with us. Until finally, Nebuchadnezzar came along, and he carted off all the treasures away from the city. And the beauty was now gone. Now, these are interesting figures in and of themselves, I believe. But they're even more so when they're compared to us. The church 
is Jerusalem, isn't it? It's, we're the new Jerusalem, aren't we? And yet we can compare ourselves with at least the first three things that we see up there on the screen. Think about this. We started out in the same state that Jerusalem started. Now let me, uh, let me expand upon that. Don't raise your hands, but think about it. How many of you were raised in the church? All right, now don't raise your hands. You might be inclined to say, yes, I was raised in the church, and I know what you mean by that, but let's think about it a little bit farther. Nobody was raised in the church. Nobody. We weren't born into a relationship with God. We had to grow up and mature and become believers. Do you remember in Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, the new covenant that God said he was going to make with his people? And he says that in that covenant, no one would find themselves in a covenant relationship with God who did not already know God. Nobody was born into the church. You had to learn it. You had to uh, be a believer before you could be a part of God's kingdom. Nobody was raised in the church. Now, let me ask you another question. And you can raise your hands on this one if you want to. How many of us were children of the devil? before we became Christians. Every one of us. All of us. Sometimes we don't like to think about that, though. Especially if we have parents who are Christians. But that's the connection between us and the people of Ezekiel, the 16th chapter. Your navel cord was not cut. You were not washed or wrapped in swaddling clothes. We were of our father, the devil, before we became Christians. But that's hard to think about. Sometimes we like to think that we have some kind of a pristine existence, that there's no taint of sin with us. Sin, that belongs to somebody else. After all, I was raised in the church. But 1 John 3 and verse 8 says everybody who practices sin is of the devil. And everybody who's not a Christian is somebody who practices sin. And that includes everybody here, every one of us, before we became Christians. Somebody might say, well, I never practiced sin. There's somebody that never needed to become a Christian then, did they? right. You never practice sin. You don't need Jesus because you've learned it all on your own. But everybody who's a child of God is somebody who was baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. What then was our initial state? We were children of the devil, just like Jerusalem was. The Amorite and the Hittite were our ancestors, even if it happens to be that our physical parents are Christians. You know, sometimes parents want to know what it is that I can do to get my child to obey the gospel of Christ. And really, there's no secret there. There's no uh, secret because they need to be taught. There's no process of osmosis here where children just automatically ooze into the body of Christ. They need to be taught, just like everybody else. And once they decide to sin, once they know right from wrong and they choose the wrong pathway, then they're under the power of sin. They're under the dominion of Satan. And they can't get out of that by themselves. They need help. You know, you might recall in Romans, the seventh chapter, beginning with about verse 14 through 21, Paul talks about this very subject. And this can be a little bit confusing as you read these verses. So you've got to dig a little bit and to keep it straight. But Paul is trying to get at in these verses that here's the state of the flesh that he's describing. And he talks about somebody who wants to get out of sin and yet rely upon the flesh to do so. Let's read verses 14 through 21, Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. 
But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. You know, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Did I say this could be a little bit difficult? You've got to keep it straight. But what Paul's trying to get at here is the state of the flesh and how the flesh can't deliver itself from sin. And in fact, verse 24 of the same passage says, Who will deliver us from the body of death? And the answer is not the body itself, but rather it's Jesus Christ. We need to teach people that very thing. Teach them the state that they're in. You know, it's useless to try to convince somebody that they need to be baptized if they don't, first of all, realize that they're lost. They're in sin. We need to teach people that they're lost. Sin separates them from God. They're headed for eternal destruction. And when they understand that, then we can get across to them what they need to do about that, how they can get in a good relationship with God. You know, along the same lines, it's really not true to tell somebody that you're going to go to hell because you were never baptized. fact is, people are going to go to hell because of sin. Sin's what separates us from God, whether or not they ever heard about baptism. Now, baptism's essential, but sin's what separates us from God. That's the state of the people in Ezekiel, the 16th chapter. God had found a city that was degenerate. It was bloody, and yet God took pity on that city and helped the city and that's the same situation with the church. We don't even have to turn there. We all know John 3, 16. What's it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And when we couple that with Romans 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, we begin to understand the initial state of the church. That is, we were in a lost state. But God had compassion on us. We were sinners, and yet God had pity on us. Let's always remember what we were. Well, note the third point then. What did God do for the city? What did God do for us? God adorned us as the church with a glory, but it was with a glory from God. You might turn over to Ephesians, the fifth chapter, and look at verses 25 through 30. And as you're turning there, I would just uh, make note that Sometimes we turn to this passage to refer to what's right by the marriage relationship, and, and that's certainly a good thing to do. But the main point here, the focus, is on the church. Verse 32 is worth remembering. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so what Paul does to the Ephesians is he tells them what's right by the marriage relationship, and in the church is the same thing. But he's talking about the church as his main focus. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, as who loves his wife loves himself. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. Now certainly these verses apply to the home, but again, he's talking about the church. We've been washed when we were baptized into Christ, and now our filth and our bloodiness is all gone. 
Now I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, where Paul lists all kinds of sins and wickedness that they had been involved with. And then he tells them, such were some of you. But now you've been washed. And he goes on to try to emphasize how that they've been glorified by a glory of God. So let's make some practical application here for a few minutes then. A lot of problems that churches have today, I believe, stem from a lack of understanding of what God, what our initial state was and what God has done for us. And there are a couple of things that we need to remember about the church. First of all, even though it began around A.D. 33, there's also a very real sense in which the church is a continually new thing. Now, let me illustrate that this way. Jimmy Hickman, in roundabout years, how many years have you been a Christian? Roundabout. Okay, 48. 48 years. So even though the church is almost 2,000 years old from one sense, from one standpoint, as far as Jimmy Hickman's standpoint, it's about 48 years old. Sarah was baptized at the end of May. So for her, from her standpoint, it was about a month old, or is about a month old. Somebody else might be one year. Somebody else might be five or ten years. What's the point I'm trying to get at here? We need to realize that the church is people coming out of their father's house, the father being the devil in this sense, and not some kind of an ongoing organization, but rather the church is people coming out of sin and into Christ because God had pity on us. Let's always remember that. Never forget it. And the beauty that the church has is because God has given us a beauty. Well, there's a problem, though. Sometimes you have a tendency to trust in the church as a glorious organization that shouldn't be spotted or wrinkled, and certainly it shouldn't be. But it's not an organization where we can put our trust in the name, where we can trust in ourselves and in the organization and in our own beauty and our own renown. And I believe the Church of Christ has a renown. When you think about uh, the solidity of the home life, when you compare people of, of God versus the rest of the world, certainly we're not the standard, but you can see that people in the church, their home life excels in general. There are exceptions. beyond It exceeds what you see in the world. Years ago, Christians were known as walking Bibles because there was a renown that went with knowing what the Scriptures had to say. I know a number of years ago, uh, when I was uh, still at home, there was someone who came by our house. I don't know if it was an Avon lady or, or what, but she made the comment to my mother that, you are in the Church of Christ, aren't you? And understanding what she meant by that, my mother said, yes. Uh, how, how do you know that? And she said, well, because I see a Bible on your coffee table. And it seems to me, in my experience, that when I see a Bible on the coffee table, it always means they're in the Church of Christ. Well, maybe, maybe not. But that was certainly one outsider's observation. There was a renown with that. And there's been, we've been known over the years as standing against man-made dogmas. And again, you know, and standing for the truth and speaking where the Bible speaks and remaining silent where the Bible's silent. But you know, there's also a danger. We can start trusting in our own reputation. You might recall the church in Revelation, the third chapter, the church at Sardis. It had a reputation for being alive, and yet it was very much dead. The same thing happens today. Churches get a sense of identity based on past performance. Well, we must be okay. We must be in good shape. After all, we've stood for the truth all these years. And, and after all, we are the church of Christ. And we're glowing, and we're prosperous, and we're happy. And look at all the silver in the streets. 
and we're not trusting in our own beauty, just like Jerusalem did. So we, we start trusting in our own beauty, just like Jerusalem did. And there are several identifying characteristics of this very thing. Have you ever been asked what you believe on a given subject? If you answer, the church of Christ teaches, your trust is in the wrong place. I guarantee you. The church of Christ believes. The church of Christ doesn't teach or believe anything, not as a title, not if it's doing what God wants to do. What's the right answer? What's the Bible teach? What does God say on this matter? We need to put our trust in what God says and not what the church of Christ as a title stands for or has stood for over the past 100 years. You know, I guarantee you there are apostate congregations today, and I'm talking about congregations that aren't worth a plug nickel as far as how faithful they are, who would never, ever, ever use a mechanical instrument of music in worship. And do you know why? The church of Christ doesn't do that. That's not what we do as a church of Christ. That's not part of our tradition. It's not part of the glory that we've adorned ourselves with. And they've never stopped to ask themselves the question, what does the Bible say on this matter? You ask some people why they don't use a mechanical instrument of music in worship, and they might say, well, the Church of Christ doesn't do that. We will someday. And we'll start doing the very thing that God warns against in Ezekiel, the 16th chapter, when he tells them, don't play the harlot with these errors. Ephesians 5 and verse 11 tells us to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. It's important to realize that our identity is with God and not with our long-standing traditions because sometimes we have a tendency to trust in those things. You know, there's many brethren today who seem to believe that we're in pretty good shape today uh, as opposed to a number of years ago, maybe in the 50s and the 60s, when you had a lot of splits with regard to institutional issues. And they think, well, we're pretty solid now. I believe we're in great danger now. And part of the reason is because some of the people, who, even though they sided with what's right, they still think in the same way. They still put their trust in the wrong thing. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Years ago, I believe people went astray because, or a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people went astray because they really didn't know what the Bible said on some of these things. They didn't know how to go and establish authority but what they did know is, well, this is the Church of Christ. Uh, we're calling ourselves by a good name. It must be okay. And, and they went off into error without knowing what the Word of God said. Did we learn our lesson from that? Well, hopefully some did, but, you know, I'm afraid some people didn't. Because then people started identifying themselves not just with Churches of Christ anymore, but now we're the conservative Churches of Christ. And we can't even use that anymore now because some of those people that went off into that institutionalism, now they call themselves conservative and sound out. Now we've got to tack on. We're non-institutional conservative churches of Christ. And you know, it doesn't really end there either because what about other doctrines that are taught and stood for in churches? You know, marriage, divorce, and remarriage comes up sometimes. What about that? Well, we can just keep labeling ourselves and following after these labels and following after these movements. We're the conservative, non-institutional, multi-class-having, proper marriage, divorce, remarriage, teaching, Romans 14, understanding Church of Christ. If that's where you want to put your trust, you're still going to mess up because Satan's not going to stop with those things. He's going to keep at it. We need to be grounded in what's right and what God says on every matter. Don't put your trust in a name. Yes, we've got to use Bible names. We've got to use Bible descriptions. 
but we can't put our trust in those titles. We can't put our trust in preachers or in magazines or colleges or what have you. We need to be aware that on our own we are nothing. Proverbs, the 28th chapter and verse 26, tells us that the man who trusts in his own wisdom is a fool. Without God, we're all unwashed degenerates. We need to realize that our dependence is on God. Could the city of Jerusalem have saved itself without God? It didn't. It wasn't cleansed until God came into the picture and had compassion. So we need never trust in what the Church of Christ as a title is, what it has been, or what it could be. Now let me offer one caveat here, because I think this is important. Don't put your trust in the name or title or yourselves. At the same time, there seems to have been a trend in recent years where some people want to go out and, and look for all the traditional things that churches have been doing and then go and do opposite. And we need to avoid that witch hunt too. And, and I'll, I'll not even go into that in detail. That's a whole other lesson. But I just wanted to throw that in. You know, in Joshua, the 24th chapter, in verse 15, we all know it. Joshua told the children of Israel, to choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, which were, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And in that vein, let me just say this to you. You can decide for yourselves where you want to put your trust. If you want to put it in the name Church of Christ, if you want to put it in the name of a preacher or a magazine or what have you. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. As for me and my house, we're going to put our trust in the Lord God and in His Word. And then we'll be on that firm foundation. If we can help anybody render obedience to the gospel of Christ today, please come forward and let us know while we stand and sing.